Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. For today's episode, one in a continuing series of questions around third parties, dealing with third parties and compliance around third parties. Question today is, should I have a third-party code of conduct or third-party or supplier code of conduct? And if so, what should it look like? So let's tackle the first question first. Should you have one? The data shows that about a third of organizations, at least back in 2014, had a partner code, vendor code, third-party code. There are many different types of names for this document. I would guess that that is about accurate, that it's probably somewhere south of 50% of organizations that have these sorts of documents. It's a growing number of organizations. And I think that this is done partly in response and in anticipation of the growing trend of asking vendors and others to sign off on the vendor code or the third-party code and the relative ease or at least comparative ease in getting a vendor or supplier or partner or other third party to sign off on one of these documents versus your own code. As many of you are painfully aware, it has become a trend amongst organizations that are contracting with each other as partners, vendors, suppliers, or some other third-party relationship to ask the other partner in that engagement to sign off or certify to their code of conduct. This is, to me, a very troubling trend because I think it's sort of the worst, often, not always, but the worst example of sort of a buy-the-box, check-the-box method of compliance. For the most part, these organizations aren't doing really significant due diligence. They just want somebody to sign off that they are complying with their code of conduct so that they can presumably at some point in the future show a regulator or another third party that they've got this piece of paper or this document or this digital signature that shows said compliance. I don't think it really amounts to much. I think it's not always, I don't want to insult anybody, but it can often be a little bit lazy. So one of the responses to this sort of blanket sign-off on our code of conduct, our employee code of conduct, which has a lot of stuff in it that really doesn't apply to a vendor or a third party, is the notion that, well, maybe there's a kinder, gentler way to approach this if we're going to insist on uh, certification or acknowledgement to provide a document that is more tailored to what the relationship actually is. So I think the threshold question as to whether you should have one or not is, is this something that you're currently doing or that your management is requiring that there be certification or that there be reciprocal certification? If that's the case, then perhaps there's a way to do that in a less one-size-fits-all manner, if you will. Because at its heart, there's a lot of material that is in an employee code of conduct that just simply isn't or shouldn't be in a third-party or vendor code of conduct. Another important question to ask at the beginning of any inquiry here is, do you have a lot of third parties that you're dealing with? And amongst those third parties that you've conducted your risk assessment on, do you feel that there is significant risk of compliance risk in areas that need to be addressed? 
So once you've done your compliance risk assessment and done your due diligence amongst the third parties that your organization deals with, then you'll have a clear picture as to what risks are out there. And an answer should present itself, I guess, as to whether you think having a third-party vendor code of conduct makes sense and whether it makes sense to have a document that addresses those risks that you've uncovered during your risk assessment. So honestly, the first step to be taken here is a a really clear and comprehensive risk assessment of your third-party risk. And the results of that will probably lead you to a solid conclusion as to whether you need something to kind of fill the breach Many organizations include language in their contracts and agreements with their third parties, their vendors, their distributors, agents, etc., that go over compliance responsibilities and require compliance certification or agreement to certain standards in the contract language itself. And so that might make a code for vendors redundant if that language is already very strong in your standard contract language. But contracts are negotiated. And one thing you'd want to look at is maybe you have some standard language with third parties that's in a contract that you would propose that, you know, say, let's just call it uh, 75 or 80% of your third party vendors do sign off on. But if you have some inconsistencies where there are others who negotiate a little bit more firmly or simply flat out refuse to take your standard contract language, or maybe you're operating off of that partner's contract rather than your own, you want to look into that and make sure that you're not simply relying on the boilerplate that may or may not be in the standard contract if not all of your third parties are adhering to that specific language. So those are all strong and important inquiries to make to determine whether or not you may need a partner code of conduct, a third-party code of conduct, a vendor code of conduct. Again, there are many names. There are, there are many ways to approach this. So assuming you've made the determination after your risk assessment that there is a need for this document, what do these documents typically look like? Well, the first thing to consider is, as my intoning of several different titles may suggest, some of them are very different looking from each other. The the sort of second inquiry you make after you've made the determination that you're going to need this document is really consider what the purpose of it is going to be and who the audience is going to be. If it's primarily going to be vendors, then that can kind of draw a circle around the risks that you know exist for that population. If it's going to be a broader third-party code of conduct, then maybe it's a broader group of risks that you want to include and discuss in that document. Again, consider the audience. Consider who you expect to review this. And consider the purpose. Is this document meant to just be general guidance? Or are you going to expect, as part of the contracting process, the the ongoing relationship, the due diligence process, for these third parties to sign a certification or otherwise acknowledge this document? And if that's the case, then obviously that uh, determines quite a bit how you draft it and what you include in the contents. 
some other general impressions that you will get if you review a lot of these third-party codes of conduct yourself. And they're not as readily available online as employee codes of conduct typically are, but you can find partner codes or vendor codes if you just do some Google searches. Many public companies do make those available on their website so you can take a look. Generally speaking, they're much shorter documents than a code of conduct. If your average code of conduct runs, say, 10 to 12,000 words in about 40 to 50 pages, these typically are about 10 pages long, and let's call it 1,500 to 2,000 words. They're much shorter documents on average. Some are longer. Some may be closer to 20 pages. Some are shorter. Some are only two or three pages long. So I think if there's sort of a typical characteristic that you can attribute to these documents is that they're much shorter, and therefore they cover a much more limited amount of information. But I would caution you, particularly these days when you're putting together a partner or third-party code of conduct, that you probably want to bring over some of the same aspects and benefits that we see in modern employee code of conducts that have been developed over the last few years. I think you want to apply the same standards that you would when you're either developing or redeveloping an employee code of conduct that you would for a supplier or vendor code of conduct. First and foremost, the document should be accessible and accessible not only physically accessible and available on your portal or or otherwise for vendors to find, but also it should have language that's accessible. And there are a couple of levels there, and I don't want to belabor things that I've said before about code of conduct and some of these other podcasts and encourage you to, if you're looking at employee codes of conduct, to consider those factors. But just generally speaking, you want to have language that is simple, not overly complex, not a lot of legalese. You want it to be accessible and and interesting language and get to the point. Also, you want it to be simple, particularly if you're going to translate it. I've said it before in some of these other podcasts when we're talking about translations just generally. If you have a complex legalistic document in English, it's only going to be that much more complicated when you translate it into other languages. So with your third parties, vendors, and agents, and very frequently, this is going to be a document that you're going to want to translate, particularly if you have a, a large amount of third parties you're dealing with in countries such as China or, or other nations. So keeping the language simple in your English version when you're drafting your partner code will only benefit you to a great extent when you're translating it into another language. Some of the other things that we, the other developments we see in code of conduct drafting over the last few years, I would encourage you to carry over to any partner or vendor code that you draft. That would include using examples and Q&As for significant issues like anti-corruption or environmental concerns or whatever are the top tier risks that you think you're facing with these third parties. So just as you would include examples and other learning aids in a code of conduct for your employees to explain difficult but important topics. Do the same for your vendors. Don't treat this audience significantly differently than you would the audience for your code. You're going to present different information and perhaps not as much information, but you should still present it in an accessible way. 
And don't discount design elements. Just as you are using design elements in your code of conduct to encourage your employees to pay attention and read your code of conduct, you want third parties not just to sign a certification blindly without actually reading the information. Ideally, you want them to understand the risks that uh, you want them to understand and avoid. And so you want them to read this document. I think creating a document like this just as a quote-unquote CYA measure is no different than just asking them to sign off on your employee code of conduct as a rote decision. It doesn't really get you down the road. Maybe it helps to have a certification, maybe, maybe not down the road if something happens, but let's not lose the forest for the trees here. We want them not to commit a violation of the law. We want them not to violate our standards. We want them to be in compliance. So let's consider the value of having clear standards in preventing an issue arising in the first place. Let's not discount that. So let's try to make a vendor or third-party code of conduct just as accessible as you would any um, communication on compliance and ethics to your employee population. The other things that you want to have in your vendor or third-party code of conduct is to talk about resources that are available. If you, for example, provide access to your hotline or a hotline for third parties, obviously you want to talk about that. You want to talk about the fact that you investigate and you take seriously any reports of violation of the code, policy, or law. So just as you would provide resources and information about following up and asking questions for your employees, depending on the resources you have available or are going to make available to your third parties, you want to obviously tout those resources in your third party or partner code of conduct as well. Another key thing that I would encourage you to at least consider including is some discussion of the core values, particularly if you have taken a course with your employee code of conduct and your communications internally about compliance and ethics that are based around the doing the right thing ethos and the speak up ethos and the other values that organizations now construct a lot of the communication in compliance and ethics around. If you are communicating to your employees about making ethical and smart decisions, there's no reason why you wouldn't communicate the same information, the same philosophy uh, to third parties who are very often going to be acting on your behalf in in similar and same ways as your employees are. So if that is the way you're communicating already, carry that over. Have it speak with a similar voice as you do to your employees. Now, granted, it's going to be generally a much smaller document. It's going to cover much more specific risks that you feel you have with third parties. But the tone and the way you speak to these third parties, I don't think it really should vary um, that much when you're talking about these important issues. The upshot this time is... When considering a third-party or partner code of conduct, take a hard look at the purpose and the audience you're trying to reach and what currently you have in place to reach them on compliance and ethics issues. And when considering the content of this document, consider accessibility, readability, and all the other tools and methods you're currently using for your employee code of conduct and adapt those to this varied audience. Today, we have three questions with Kelly Clark. 
Kelly is Senior Vice President Safety, Environmental, and Regulatory Services for Holland America Group, which includes Princess Cruises, Holland America Line, Seaborn, P&O Cruises Australia, as well as Holland America Princess Alaska Land Operations. She oversees fleet compliance efforts, including safety and environmental operations, emergency response organization, policy and procedure development and implementation, and training for operations literally all across the world. As the group's chief ethics officer, she spends much of her time improving awareness and education throughout the organization on the importance of working with integrity, honesty, and ethics at all levels. Under her stewardship, Princess Cruises, Holland America Line, and Seaborn have all been Ethics Inside certified, while Holland America Line has been named to the list of world's most ethical companies from Ethisphere for five consecutive years. She is CCEP certified, was named to the list of in-house counsel who matter by Ethisphere in 2013 and 2014, and to the list of attorneys who matter in the area of ethics and compliance in 2015 and 2016, also from Ethisphere. She served on the board of directors for Big Brothers and Big Sisters of Puget Sound from 2003 to 2008, and again from 2009 to 2014, serving as board chair in 2013 and as a big sister from 2007 through 2015. She received her JD from New York University School of Law in 1993, and not content with just one graduate degree, she received her MBA in the same year from NYU. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you, Eric. It's good to be here today. Can you talk to us a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up in your compliance role? Well, I think like most people in our industry, I, I didn't get here from there. I started out as a, an associate in a large law firm in Manhattan and did the same things as most associates in large law firms in Manhattan spending time reviewing documents and preparing for depositions. But I also did a fair number of cases in the white-collar criminal defense arena. And one of the things I enjoyed about those cases was working with clients to figure out how to ensure that going forward, the kinds of mistakes that had been made weren't made again. So that was intriguing to me from the early days of my career. At the time, there really wasn't an ethics and compliance industry per se, but certainly there was a, a lot of conversation that was starting around it. I left private practice in 2002 to go in-house and served Hall the America Line as general counsel, as you noted, for a number of years. And at the same time, I had the chief ethics officer hat. And after I got my head around what it meant to be general counsel, which took a couple of years, I started contemplating that chief ethics officer role. It hadn't existed before I took over as general counsel. So I started thinking about what it meant and what we should be doing, and that's really when I launched my focus on the compliance track. At the same time, the cruise industry had had a number of significant prosecutions in the environmental arena from the late 1990s on. The Holland America Line itself had some challenges in the late 90s and early 2000s that we were recovering from, and so we had a group within the fleet services team that was also focused on compliance and really started emphasizing culture pretty intently. And so the work that they were doing dovetailed pretty nicely with thinking that I was doing over on the general counsel side. When the group was reorganized so that the four brands you mentioned are now managed under the same senior executive level, my role was created as a chief compliance officer, if you will, safety and environmental programs as well as health and security programs are the core four areas of compliance for any maritime fleet. And then, of course, we have the broader issues that most international companies face around compliance issues. 
We also have ADA uh, issues that we need to worry about on ships as well as on shore. And so it's a very broad remit mm-hmm. to work with all of the areas of our operation to ensure that, that we know what the right thing to do is and that we do the right things. You mentioned that you, for a while, had this sort of dual hat role, which is something that is going to be familiar to a lot of people who are responsible for compliance. But one thing I know, and, and the dual hat role is very often comes out of a legal role of being general counsel or an, or an assistant general counsel. But one thing I know that you have tried to do at Holland America and something that's happening at other organizations we've talked about before is bringing people who don't necessarily come from a legal background, come from an operational background many times into compliance. And I was kind of curious as to your personal philosophy, if you will, around trying to expand the pool of applicants, if you will, that have responsibility for compliance beyond a legal role. The more the merrier. Yes. (laughs) We, um, so as you mentioned, I, I did very intentionally try to expand the pool of people that were engaged on the compliance side when I was in the dual hat role, as you put it. The way that I thought about it at the time, and, and I don't, let me stop and say, I don't think there's a one size fits all solution. I know there's a big debate about whether compliance should sit in legal or not. I think yeah. in an ideal world, it does not, where they do think they are two separate functions, but I think it all depends on the, and I also think they're just separate thought processes, and I'll come back to that in just a second. But it really all depends on the company and what's right for the company. At the time, given the size of Hall and America Line, it made sense to have it combined. When you combine the resources of four fleets and 40 ships, it becomes a little bit easier to have separate departments focusing on these issues. So when I was general counsel and chief ethics officer, I very intentionally set about to think differently about each one of those roles. I didn't assume that being general counsel meant I necessarily knew how to be a chief ethics officer. And over the course of time, I realized that I was right and that even though I'd spent a lot of time doing compliance type work when I was outside counsel, it's very different when you're in-house. And so one of the things that I realized very quickly is that having the people engaged from the operations side is of critical importance in order to sustain the credibility of the program. And so I brought in someone, a woman who had been a second officer from our fleet, and Mm -hmm. she came in as the first full-time ethics manager in our department, and she was able to speak with ships directly. She understands what the crew is going through when she's dealing with someone from the ship. She also has been shoreside long enough that she understands how things work on the shoreside, and so she has been an invaluable asset in moving our program forward. And then a little over a year ago, I brought in someone who is a career professional at compliance, which is hard to find, but she'd had 20 years in in the healthcare arena. No experience in the maritime industry, but she brought the strength of understanding the infrastructure of compliance and has also, between, between Angie, our new director, and Emily, our manager, they've really just reset the bar for compliance structure within our industry. I think bringing those different skill sets together is a recognition that a lot of organizations have now. But like you said, you know, there's no one size fits all. And I bristle a little bit when the suggestion is, is that as lawyers or as general counsel, uh, you can't also have compliance responsibility depending on the organization. I don't think that's fair. Now, if you could go back in time before you had that dual hat role, before you had compliance as a responsibility, if what's one piece of advice you would have given yourself uh, with regards to the compliance role? I think I'd wish I'd spent more time doing earlier on in my career is thinking about what it means to be a leader. Like most people, I followed a path that 
was with opportunities that were presented to me along the way and learned a lot about what it means to be a leader, particularly in the compliance arena as I went. But I wish I'd spent more time reading about what that means and talking with people and then watching people who are in leadership positions and seeing what I like about what they did and what I didn't like about what they did. Um, It's easier to figure out the latter and less easy to figure out the former because oftentimes when you have a good leader in front of you, you don't really realize what they're doing well. But the reality is anyone who is in the compliance area is definitionally going to have to be a leader. You have to be willing to stand up. You have to be willing to tell people what you think. You have to be willing to listen and learn. And all of those things and others are critical components to being a leader. So it doesn't matter what level you are in the organization. In my view, anyone in compliance needs to have the strength of of leadership and be prepared to stand up for things that may not be popular, defend themselves, or again, listen and learn as they go. So I wish I'd spent a lot more time thinking about that and being a little bit more intentional about it. No, I think that, you know, we were talking about this before. I, the times that we live in, <laughs> I think, cry out for people in the compliance profession, people who are responsible for compliance and ethics programs to be leaders, both within their organizations and defending their organizations internally and externally against what they perceive to be not only just violations of the law, but things that aren't consistent with the the values that have been set out by that organization as, as important values. And I think it's wise, given the climate that we find ourselves in, to, to keep that front of mind. I agree with you completely, Eric. As, as you and I sit here, um, last night, Sally Yates was fired as the acting attorney general for directing her organization not to defend an executive order that she felt was unsupportable by the law and by what's just. Irrespective of what you think about the executive order that was standing out there, it took a tremendous amount of courage and leadership for her to make that kind of a decision. And she was fired, and there'll be a lot of debate over the course of the next few weeks about whether or not she made the right decision by objecting or whether she should have resigned. And you know, I, for one, think that she did the right thing because I think that when you lead an organization, the integrity of that organization as the leader is one of your critical roles, preserving the integrity of that organization. So I admire what she did. We'll continue to debate it, but I do think she exemplified what we all need to be prepared to do in a role like this where we are defending doing what is right. I think that's a good point. Like you say, irregardless of how an individual feels about the order and about her act, that thought process needs to be front of mind for everybody in that leadership role. Now, if you could peer into your compliance and ethics crystal ball over the next couple of years, uh, what one or two trends in, in the space and compliance do you think are going to be very important for all of us? I don't want to belabor the point because we've, we've alluded to it throughout this entire discussion, but I think that we will all need to be prepared to be more engaged with our own leadership, to, be, to help them understand where they may not see differences between their perspective and, and that of our employees. If you work for a very large corporation, there's an understandable expectation at the very senior levels that, of course, we want everyone to do the right thing. I don't know any executive anywhere, I'm sure one or two exist, but I don't know any, who would intentionally try to get people to do the wrong thing. That said, the messages that we send unintentionally send those messages, send that tone. And I know we talk about tone at the top, we talk about the uh, leadership engagement, but leaders need to be tasked to think more critically about what they are saying and how they are saying it and what the message 
is that could be heard. Absolutely. And, and relating to the last point too, if you look at, for instance, the gentleman from Volkswagen, who has variously been described as a compliance officer or an engineer, but but he had a, a role with regard to reporting things to a regulator and clearly, according to the affidavit anyway, was doing things that were trying to continue to obscure the facts. And, and that's like the opposite of what we're talking about, standing up for the organization and for the values and for the the law and the policies and code of the of the organization. And, you know, you kind of find yourself in the breach, so to speak, as a compliance officer or in a compliance role. And that's not going to change. And that's going to only intensify, I would think, as we move on. Exactly. Kelly, I can't thank you enough for spending a few minutes and answering our three questions today. Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure to be here. I look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.